The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, crypto and finance editor for Barron's, and welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we have Barry Bannister, chief equity strategist at Stiefel. Barry has more than three decades of experience as a stock analyst and equity strategist and has won numerous awards for his research, including being named to Institutional Investors All-America Research Team four times. He takes a big-picture view of the markets, looking at everything from the Fed's interest rate policies to economic trends, geopolitics, technical factors, commodities, and stock sectors. Thanks for being here, Barry. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's start uh, with an overview of like the markets today. Um, the market has been especially volatile this year with the war in Ukraine, a big spike in oil prices, and concerns about inflation and rising interest rates. None of that is very good for equities, but the S&P 500 is down only about 5 or 6% on the year. It could be a lot worse considering the tough macro conditions and the big spike in bond yields that we've seen, which puts a lot of pressure on stock prices and valuations. So I guess the first question is, Barry, do you think that the market is appropriately pricing in all the risks that are out there right now? They are based on our expectation of where the economy and also the Federal Reserve is going to go, because so much of this bull market really since uh, January 2019 has been driven by Federal Reserve policy. So when the Federal Reserve changes its tune on how fast they raise rates, on how quickly they shrink the size of their assets that they bought during the quantitative easing period. As they change their view, it has a huge effect on the market, such as the volatility yesterday and today, due to two Fed prominent officials sending out fairly hawkish or negative uh, signals based on their comments. But overall, the worst the market fell year to date was around 13%. Um, We don't see a recession. And Uh, What we think is the middle two quarters, think of that as April 1st to September 30th. That's a choppy period for the market, but if the Federal Reserve pivots and decides they've done enough rate hikes by the end of the year, we could get a Santa Claus rally. Okay, so let's let's unpack what's going on a little bit here. The Fed is um, expected to raise interest rates a little bit more aggressively um, than previously thought uh, to get... um, to, to get basically inflation under control. Um, and the markets are now anticipating at least one 50 basis point hike at the next meeting and possibly another one. Um, but I, my, my sense is, is that um, we're seeing a lot of tightening in financial conditions already um, in the markets with the big increase in the 10-year and other bond yields. Uh, and it, that may be doing some of the work for the Fed already. Do, do you agree with that? Um, and do you think that there or do you think that there could be more surprises in store for interest rates? Well, we have to consider from where we came, right? So uh, during uh, Chairman Powell's term, uh, he at first, if you recall, took the uh, interest rates up uh, through fourth quarter of 2018. So think of that fourth quarter of 2018. When the Trump tax cuts hit, it was a lot of fiscal or government spending stimulus because they were 
running a bigger deficit. Uh, and Powell leaned against that, caused a 20% sell-off in that fourth quarter of the last three months of 2018. The low was actually uh, December 24th, day before Christmas. Uh, then Powell pivoted to being more dovish, saying, oh, well, I went too far. And we kicked off a massive bull market run. During COVID, he instituted a massive QE program or quantitative easing where they were buying, believe it or not, $120 billion a month of treasuries driving interest rates down. So you're starting at such a low level of interest rates, uh, whether it's uh, what we call real or nominal, you're looking at the treasury yield right now on 10 years at only 2.6. You're looking at the real or after inflation yield based on what the treasury yield curve thinks uh, inflation will be the next decade. The real return, the return after inflation, if I were to buy a 10-year treasury, it's negative. It's still negative. It's minus 25 basis points or a quarter percent. So you have such low yields. We're at a quarter percentage point on the short end rate due to the Federal Reserve's, you know, what they call the Fed funds, that yes, they're going to tighten, but they're tightening from such an easy level that conditions are still fairly loose and there's not a lot of evidence of recession risk right now. No, we don't see it. So basically, do you think that the stock market um, can absorb these expected rate increases um, over the next six to 12 months? Yeah, we wrote that in the next two quarters, you'd see in this roughly 4,400 to 4,600 range for the S&P 500 index. Now, this is an index uh, that uh, was as high as 4,800 at the beginning of this year, 2022, and as low as around 4,200 uh, intraday or during the day. Uh, during the uh, invasion of Ukraine or again on March 14th of this of this year. So here we are at 44.73, kind of between that 4,200, 4,800 range. And we think we'll stay at roughly 4,400 to 4,600 as these middle two quarters progress. Um, there's no immediate near-term threat to earnings. There's no immediate tightening that would cause a, a, you know, a crack up in the market. Policy today is about as easy as it was uh, in 2013. And in 2013, if you recall, um, we had uh, just finished a 30% year in calendar uh, 2013 at the end of the year. Uh, and then the market had some digestion difficulties. It went sideways for a little while. And uh, I think that's where we are now. You've written about um, your expectations for a largely sideways market over the next few months, followed by a rally towards the year end that would take the S&P to around uh, 4,800, which would be a roughly 8% gain from uh, from current levels, which really wouldn't be too bad in my view, considering um, the tough macroeconomic conditions that we have right now and all of the uncertainty um, with geopolitics and interest rates and inflation, just to name uh, a few things. Um, I would just like to remind the audience to please um, submit some questions uh, for Barry, and um, we'll get to them a little bit later in the podcast. Um, so, okay, so let's 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 assume uh, perhaps that we'll have a largely range-bound market this year, um, maybe with a little bit of a rally um, towards the end of the year. How do things look a little bit beyond that? What what is your outlook for 2023? Um, is it too early to try and forecast an S and P 500 level for next year? Or do you think that we could see a rally perhaps um, after the market digests 
a little bit. Um, yeah, what's going we're on in today. such easy uh, conditions. For example, <clears throat> something called the Financial Conditions Index. One of the large investment banks calculates that. We do one of our own as well. That's a little more detailed than that model. But that model uh, that I'm referring to, with the that's calculated by the other bank. Um, you can pull it up on if you have a Bloomberg terminal, it's GSUSFCI. Um, that hit a 40 year low, meaning the easiest financial conditions in four decades in the year 2021. That is how easy the Fed got. It was the easiest conditions, meaning the less risk on bonds and stocks and defaults and uh, to equities. It was less, it's the least amount of risk in four decades. That's an amazing level to come off of. So uh, we don't think, as you mentioned earlier, Darren, the S&P really gets too far above by year end 22. We don't think it gets too far above where it started, which was 4,800 for that S&P 500. Um, so you'd round trip back to that level. And that's all. You'd end and begin the year where it started. Um, on the other hand, as you look out to 2023, if the Fed does what they call pivot or become more dovish or at least pause the rate increases, you'll get a powerful rally. And we think that'll happen on the November 2nd Federal Reserve meeting, the second to the last meeting of the year, where after raising rates during the course of the year, they stabilize, stop. And that's not a consensus kind of view. The consensus is they just keep going and they go to a higher level than we expect on interest rates. Um, but they're going to weigh the GDP slowdown. They're going to, and we see that coming. There's going to be a slowdown in GDP. You mentioned a number of concerns. Uh, they're going to weigh that inflation on a year-over-year -year basis or a monthly basis sequentially, that inflation is peaking. And when they weigh these factors, they typically pause. Uh, Yellen did it. Powell's done it. Greenspan did it. Bernanke's done it. And so when they pause, I think you get your rally. And that's the last couple months of the year into the first quarter of 2025. The issue, though, is, as you mentioned, is that over the long period, the next decade, uh, we just came off of a mid-teens return for 10 years through 2021, so 2011 to 21. You're not going to duplicate that again. You're starting at such a high level of valuation. Equities are so widely owned as a percentage of financial assets and households that history shows quite clearly that the forward return of the market would be quite weak compared to the last decade. Yeah, so you've written about this idea of a lost decade um, for stocks um, and also for another asset that um, a lot of our audience and readers are interested in, which is uh, crypto uh, and particularly Bitcoin. Um, that, that's a little bit depressing to think that the next decade returns will be lost what exactly do you mean by that? Do you think that returns will actually be at least positive on an inflation-adjusted basis for equities? And where does Bitcoin, um, as an alternative asset to equities, perhaps as a risk asset, where does it fit into all of this? Can Bitcoin rally in a climate where we are, at least in the near term, seeing tighter monetary conditions? You know, if you look at what's called rolling returns, so you take your 10-year growth rate of returns, and if I buy SPY, you know, the S&P index fund um, in my IRA account, and uh, I reinvest the dividends and there's no taxes in a tax-free account like that, if I buy that ETF, reinvest dividends, 
uh, I am expecting a zero return, dividends reinvested, for 10 years, December 2021, remember the S&P 500 was 4,800 then, to December of 31. And again, that's due to a very specific, very good historical, uh, we do quite a bit of math in our in our strategy role, um, uh, valuation measures. One is a uh, smoothed price to earnings called the CAPE ratio, except unlike uh, Schiller, we use uh, operating earnings or synthetic operating prior to the 1980s. And the other is uh, Tobin's Q, which is a price to replacement book value. So think of that as your price to book, which is very important to a value investor. We also look at households ownership of stock. That's how much the stock market portfolio of a household is as a percent of their financial assets. And what that is, is your assets minus your real estate. It's everything that's financial. So what is stocks is a percent of that total. And when that's high, returns are low. When valuation is too high, returns the next decade are low. We have good data, um, you know, back 100 years. Uh, and there are periods in time very specific periods, such as 1972 to 82, or 2000 to 2010, where you did not make a return. You earned zero um, in real or nominal terms, meaning before or after inflation, you were still close to zero. And I think one of those periods is coming, uh, unfortunately. Uh, we're going to have deglobalization. Uh, we're going to have relatively higher inflation than we've had the last 20 years. Um, an unstable environment, uh, a difficulty growing profits. Remember, profits are a function of your ability to use leverage or increase the use of your assets or improve your profit margins and have cheap labor. None of those are present anymore. Um, so your forward return from the index is low, but you can still make money. You can invest in areas that we like. And if you, know, if you want to talk about those, we can. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, I think we should, but let's, let's address Bitcoin. Um, if your outlook for the S&P 500 as an index, uh, big picture, is for a zero return, including reinvested dividends, does that make the case um, that investors need to look elsewhere um, for a real or nominal return? And would Bitcoin or perhaps other cryptos um, deliver uh, some returns if the stock market is not? Well, during these periods, um that unfortunately feature low returns, uh, typically monetary growth. This is the supply of money in the economy. Um, we look at M2 like everyone else, which is a fairly broad measure of money. What is money? It's everything on deposit, everything circulating. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, everything that's owned by institutions like corporations, uh, that's cash or near cash or cash equivalent. Um, so when you look at this broad supply of money, it's typically fairly strong and inflation is higher than normal during periods where the markets have weak returns because your price to earnings multiple, your valuation goes down as your inflation goes up. You're essentially debasing money through quantity. You're creating too much money uh, relative to what the economy needs. And crypto is a pretty good hedge against that. Crypto uh, cryptocurrency, we use Bitcoin, but you look at the index of cryptocurrencies, they all correlate very closely. They move together, and Bitcoin is pretty emblematic of the rest of the group. Uh, maybe that you go from you know, proof of work and uh, 
proof of stake and you change the way uh, it works, it's going to change that correlation. But right now, most of them correlate. Bitcoin is the one we're using. Um, so with, with that money supply, that excess money, which is a combination of people saying, you know what, prices are going up, so I might as well borrow money and own an asset like real estate or a second home because I'll just pay back that money with money that's not worth very much in the future because of inflation. So when money growth grows and you get conflicts around the world, like you mentioned Ukraine, I think Iran is a hot spot. I think Taiwan's eventually a hot spot. When you get uh, the Fed supporting the government trying to pay off these conflicts, um, then Bitcoin's a good hedge. But Bitcoin moves dramatically fast with money supply. So if money is growing, Bitcoin's going up fast. And if money is slowing on a year-over-year -year basis, that's the quantity of money, Bitcoin goes down very fast. And that's not the best way to invest in Bitcoin. We actually figured out the best way uh, to own Bitcoin or what you would want to wait for uh, to buy it or sell it. And that's the Federal Reserve. I can talk about that if you're interested. Yeah, I mean, we have a question from James, which kind of gets to this. Uh, he, he asks, how does crypto behave in the context of a portfolio? Is it a risk on inflation hedge, uh, like gold being a risk off inflation hedge? And then he asks, how should I position it? And, and I think if I'm kind of understanding what you're saying is that Bitcoin does well when velocity of money increases or when we have easy monetary policies from the Fed. But right now, we don't, um, or at least the expectation is that we won't, as the Fed raises rates and um, sells off assets from its balance sheet and generally tightens uh, monetary conditions. So is that going to be um, a headwind, in your view, for Bitcoin going forward? Remarkably, uh, Darren, the Bitcoin is more responsive not to the velocity of money, but to the quantity of money. So uh, just to really give people a, a elementary quick explanation, imagine you have an economy that has $10 of GDP and there's $1 of money in that economy. Then that means the dollar is changing hands 10 times. That's called a velocity of 10. So uh, it's the turnover. How many times that dollar changes hands in a transaction? Uh, it's the turnover that's velocity. So dollar turning over 10 times, you have a $10 economy. Uh, but it's the quantity of money that drives the, the Bitcoin. So the year-to-year -year change, this is versus a year ago, of global money supply, and we use M2 here, um, broad money. The year-over-year -year change of this global supply of money, and I'm talking the Chinese money, I'm talking the Eurozone money, I'm talking the Japanese money and the American money, uh, that when that entire supply of money, which you can convert into dollars, is going up at a rapid rate, Bitcoin's going up hundreds of percent. And when it's falling or slowing, as it has since last March, the peak rate of growth for global money was March of 2021. It has been slowing ever since. And Bitcoin starts going down because it, it can't, uh, it doesn't do well. Um, it needs that excess liquidity. Gold is more of a hedge against the velocity, the inflation. So when you have higher inflation, gold is probably the better hedge. But just the sheer quantity of money, Bitcoin's almost like a commodity. It moves up and down dramatically with the supply of money. 
the amount of money, not whether it's changing hands, just its mere existence. So now that we're seeing the supply of money decrease, this is going to put or is putting pressure on Bitcoin and other cryptos? Correct, yes. In fact, you see that when the financial conditions tighten, this is the uh, GSUS FCI, Goldman Sachs US Financial Conditions Index is a good one. It's a great one, actually. Um, that as financial conditions tighten and the Fed is tightening and uh, you know the economic growth is under pressure, it actually drags on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not doesn't respond well to a tightening of financial conditions, you know, brought on by excessive Fed rate hikes and what have you. So I think Bitcoin could have some near-term pressure. I'm looking at a chart this very minute, and it indicates somewhere around 26, 28,000 is possible if financial conditions tighten over the course of the next six months. The 26 or 28,000 for Bitcoin would be a price. That's a major crack up. But you know what? In the last 10 years, you've had uh, several of those kind of 50% drops, and uh, usually they're a buying opportunity. Um, the other thing to consider, and this is extremely important if you're buying crypto, is that we have a chart of Bitcoin relative to gold. You simply take the price of a Bitcoin divided by the price of an ounce of gold. So Bitcoin versus gold. And the very best times to buy Bitcoin relative to gold. So if you know what I'm talking about, it's long short. So I'm in my portfolio, I'm long Bitcoin short XAU or short the gold or short GLD. Um, so the time to buy Bitcoin relative to gold is almost to the day that the Federal Reserve shifts to a dovish kind of dovish stance. I don't want to say chickens out, but the Federal Reserve has a tendency when they crack up the market and they crack up the economy to chicken out, to uh, become very dovish. So we've seen four instances just in the last 10 years where the Fed pivoted to a very dovish stance. Ben Bernanke did QE3 in the fourth quarter 2012. Bitcoin relative to gold absolutely soared from 2013 to 2014. Same thing happened when Janet Yellen pivoted to dovish in the first quarter of 16. She became very alarmed that the dollar was so strong and the economy was slowing and oil had been crushed. And from December 15 to about December 17, Bitcoin relative to gold was a fantastic asset. Same thing happened when Powell pivoted to dovish at the uh, January of 2019, and especially on COVID in January, or excuse me, March of 2020. Bitcoin relative to gold took off. So I would wait for the Fed to get dovish. There is nothing dovish about this Fed right now, but I would wait for the Fed to get dovish, and then I would go buy Bitcoin. And if you're doing long, short, market neutral, you would sell gold to fund your buying of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin long, gold short, when the Fed gets dovish. They are not dovish now. No, they're not. Um, and um, maybe they will start to get a little less restrictive towards the end of the year. I don't know if that would qualify as being dovish in your view, but uh, perhaps that would be a time um, to to buy some Bitcoin. Um Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier, that there are still ways to make money in this market, which um, I think would be of interest to a lot of people. So if the S&P is going to be flat um, or negative, that doesn't necessarily mean that individual sectors or industries won't do well. So what would you be emphasizing and what would you be avoiding? 
if you look back on all the periods, and we can go back, like I say, I can go back in the stock market 200 years. I know it's a pretty thin market if you go back 200 years, but the data exists. The data has been done by academics. Uh, it's been published by National Bureau of Economic Research, by Yale University Center of Finance. I mean, it's all out there. We have stock data, price and dividends, going back two centuries. And we know from that history that your rolling 10-year compound return uh, has never been negative in 200 years if you own stocks for 20 years, 20, 20, 20 years. Never, not once, in real or nominal terms, meaning before or even after inflation, you have never lost money over 20 years and two centuries in stocks. However, over 10 years, as I said, you can go negative in real or nominal terms, before or after inflation, you can go negative in a 10-year stretch. And, you know, just most recently, recent for me is since World War II, 1945, um, you had some tough periods for stocks from like 1972 to 82 or uh, 2000 to 2010. Um, when that happens, typically it's better to be not in passive indexes, like I mentioned SPY or uh, VFINX or VFIAX at Vanguard or any any form of uh, you know passive S&P or passive index, you're better off with active management, managers that can add value, that have a style that is working. The other thing that works is value, and it beats growth typically. That's because of this reflation that occurs in these periods. Um, this debasement of currency and strength of commodities is one of your great signals that you're in one of those value cycles. And value consists of mostly things like um, uh, financials, energy, industrials, basic materials that you would mine or process, um, as well as the defensive value, utilities, staples, uh, things are, you know, consumer staples that you buy every day, Procter & Gamble type stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, some real estate, uh, real estate, uh, very selectively, you got to know what to buy. Um, these are good things to own, value over growth. And there are value indices, Russell 1000 value, which is large cap value. There are ETFs for that. The other is alternative investing, and that includes commodities and commodity managed funds. But those are, you know, you've got to be careful, but they, they are out there, these alternative investments. The other is hedge funds. You know, they, their structure is market neutral. They don't care if the market's up or down. They're long on one side and short on something else opposite it. So you can make money in a soft market in a long, short, um, you know, portfolio. And the last thing is international. Outside the U.S., the world's mostly value. See, it's not growth. All the big tech companies, the biggest ones, are either here and there's a few in China. Okay, but international equity indices uh, are a good place to be uh, when the market in the U.S. softens because the U.S. is pretty much represented by tech and growth, whereas the international is represented by more value, more financials, more industrials, more energy, some big consumer products companies and so forth. So that's it. Um, you would say uh, active managers value instead of growth. Uh, hedge funds, alternative investments, and international equity uh, would be the place to be in this kind of an environment. You can add value. Okay, so basically um, the the NASDAQ uh, and the high-growth tech stocks that have been the market darlings for so long 
uh, are not the place to be in your view right now. You like value indices, uh, you like international, um, and uh, you would be emphasizing alternatives and hedge funds um, for investors who are accredited and can access them. Um, we have one. We have time for one more um, audience question, which is from Rebecca, uh, who asks, "Do you think that commodities still have room to grow?" It's a good question. You know, we spent a lot of time. In fact, uh, twenty-three minutes to, or about thirty-three minutes ago, I was asking that, talking about that with somebody going through about a hundred charts. Uh, commodities have had a tremendous run off of what was one of the four lowest points in 200 years. Yes, we have that data. In, in 200 years of data, we, we actually have more than that. Uh, commodity prices growth rate, this is my 10-year growth rate of a commodity index in the United States, um, that the commodities bottomed in April of 2020 during COVID and one of only four lows in two centuries. The other lows were July 1930 in the Great Depression, January 1875 towards the end of Reconstruction and the Long Depression, and then 1825, January, uh, the first depression of the United States. So I would classify what's happened since 2008 in the financial crisis as a depression fought against by central banks being super easy to try to mitigate that crisis. Um, and so as you go up in commodities, they are up, but they are only back to a growth rate of zero for the last 10 years. That's how badly they had fallen the prior 10. So they're just up to where they were, essentially flat with where they were a decade ago. If you look at the broad index, and I'm including everything, not just oil. Um, I do think there's upside. I think it'll go up in a stair-step fashion, like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one steps back. And as that cycle progresses over a decade, uh, they typically last at least 10 years, um, then you would go uh, on economic weakness. You'll see a pullback in the, in, the, in the next year or so. And then you go up to new highs and then a pullback and then final highs. Um, but that lasts a decade. And uh, so, yeah, I think you can approach that through value since value versus growth is highly correlated with commodities. So this could be the start um, of another super cycle uh, for commodities, uh, which I think would uh, be interesting for investors who might not want to have as much equity exposure and are looking for an alternative. I think the difficulty for uh, a lot of investors is, is a good finding a good way to access commodity exposure that isn't uh, very costly in terms of uh, fees and uh, friction from uh, owning and rolling over futures contracts. No, no, no. I, I mean, iShares, you can do, there are ETFs, but the, one of the problems is the taxation, the way commodities are treated. I, in some cases, it'll be ordinary income. But um, I, I mean, just there are ETFs for individual industries and there are ETFs for individual sectors. I know that spiders has sector spiders. Uh, and so you can get commodity producer exposure through ETFs without having to own the actual physical commodities themselves. And that's that's fine. I mean, that, that'll work. But I'm saying again, I don't think that I think at this point you're looking at some rapid trade offs between value and growth. So if the Fed doves out in the fourth quarter then I want to buy growth for that rally because that's where the PE expansion, the price earnings multiple goes up. I want to play the growth for a rally, but that doesn't mean they're going to go to new highs. That just means that they rally. Uh, and uh, you're going to have to be a pretty opportunistic trader in the coming years 
uh, in this softer market environment between value and growth and international and domestic. It's not going to just be a one decision, buy SPY, hold on to it for 10 years, make a double-digit mid-teens return, and go play golf or whatever. It's not that way anymore. This is a more difficult environment going forward. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for being here, Barry, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. And then we hope you'll listen to our next episode tomorrow. Barron's Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Alex Yule will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. Be well and stay safe. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.